0: Welcome back to the Revision Hub for the final episode in the trio of episodes all about fields. In this episode we'll recap the basics covered at GCSE and then move on to new concepts covered at A-level. The first thing we'll cover is magnetic field lines and these always go from north to south. If you had two bar magnets you would draw parallel lines between the centres with arrows from north to south and curved lines from north to south around the edges. In our previous episode, we discussed that if you placed a positive test charge at the central position between two positive charges, that it wouldn't move because the resultant force acting on it due to the electric field would be zero. There's a similar principle here. The point at the centre of two bar magnets with the same pole facing inwards, e.g. north-north, is called the neutral position. The electric field is formed around a current carrying wire, and you can use the right-hand grip rule to decide the direction of the field lines. This is something you probably covered at GCSE, and you need to align your thumb in the direction of the current, and the direction in which your fingers wrap around is the direction of the magnetic field. I like to imagine that when you see a point on the page, is the current coming out of the page because there's a dart coming towards you, and when it's going into the page you got a cross because that's the flight of the dart. But some people like to think of it as being the dot being the O, as in out of the page. It's personal preference as long as you have a way to remember it. The next topic in this episode is Fleming's left-hand rule. We'll cover the right-hand rule later. The left-hand rule is used for motors, and you'll have covered this at GCSE. Essentially, a force is experienced when a current flows through a wire perpendicular to the direction of the magnetic field. This is because the magnetic field due to the current carrying wire and the magnetic field due to the magnets combine and result in a stronger magnetic field. This provides a pushing force on the the wire. The thumb represents the force, the first finger represents the direction of the external magnetic field and the second finger represents the direction of conventional current flow. These fingers should all be perpendicular to each other. This leads to the equation f equals bil, where b is the magnetic flux density, i is the current, and l is the length of wire in the magnetic field. Note that it sometimes mean that the entire length of the wire isn't relevant if it isn't all in the magnetic field. Let's now consider the forces acting on a coil in a magnetic field. As it rotates, the force acting changes, and depending on the start position, you should use either F equals BIL sine theta or cos theta as appropriate. If you're starting off perpendicular, then this is when the force is maximum, so use cos because this is maximum at zero degrees, where you're starting. If they're parallel initially, then the force is zero at this point, so use sine so that 90 degrees is where the force is maximum. Sine sine 90 is 1. When the forces are perpendicular, they form a torque, and this is felt by the central section of the rotating coil. The edges feel the force. Once the coil is rotated by 180 degrees, the fixed magnetic field is now in the opposite direction. So if you had north to south before, if you consider it in, in relation to the same side of the coil is now south to north, this would mean that the force is in the opposite direction to originally and the coil wouldn't spin. To to resolve this you need something you'll be familiar with from GCSE, a split ring commutator. This reverses the current every half cycle in a DC motor so that the force continues to be in the same direction. Note that in an AC motor, slip rings are used because AC reverses the current direction every half cycle anyway. Just as a point to pick up on, the force is zero when the fixed magnetic field and current are parallel, however the momentum of the coil will carry it through this section until it experiences a force again. The next section is all about cyclotrons and particle accelerators and the way they use a different form of F equals BIL, F equals BQV. This works by substituting I with Q over T from Q equals IT, then replacing L as velocity multiplied by time. The time is then cancelled, leaving BQV. The direction of velocity is dependent upon the charge. The negatively charged electrons are repelled according to true current flow, meaning that they travel clockwise, whereas positive charges can be considered to use conventional charge, so they rotate anticlockwise. A cyclotron consists of two evacuated d's with a gap in the middle Across which an alternating supply is connected. This then means an electric field acts across the gap. The magnetic field is constant and is only experienced in the d's. I'd recommend searching online for a diagram for this however they vary in quality so I'd suggest looking at a few because they, sh- they all show different details. In this example we'll consider a proton. The radius of its path increases because the proton is heavy However, the time taken to travel through the semicircle is constant because speed increases at the same rate as distance. By relating f equals bqv and mv squared over r, the equation for centripetal force, and rearranging for r, we get r equals mv over bq. When you take that v equals 2 pi fr, which is equal to 2 pi r over t, because frequency is 1 over the time period, So, t equals 2 pi r over v, and sub in r as mv over bq, then you get t equals 2 pi mv over v bq. As velocity cancels, this shows that the time taken is the same regardless of radius. For the sake of simplicity, in explaining the next concept, we'll say that f equals bq over 2 pi m, which is just the period equation. Flipped for frequency. The frequency is referred to as the cyclotronic frequency, and is the frequency at which the alternating current changes direction, because this means that the electric field accelerates the proton across the gap between the evacuated d's. The time taken is unchanged, because at greater velocities, the radius mv over bq is larger, and hence the path taken is longer, and the time taken is the same note, the speed is unchanged in the evacuated Ds, however the movement in the magnetic field causes a force, a centripetal force into the centre, hence the circular path. The velocity does change, however, as although speed is constant, velocity is a vector with magnitude and direction, and direction is constantly changing for an object in circular motion. Speed is only changed as the proton is accelerated across the gap by the potential difference acting across it. We're now moving on to the next section in this episode. Magnetic flux and flux linkage. It feels appropriate to start this section off with a few definitions. Don't worry though, they can all be derived using their equations. It's just helpful to make sure we're all familiar with the key terms i will be using later on. So, magnetic flux density is something I referenced earlier. It's normally defined using a rearrangement of F equals BIL to B equals F over IL. Magnetic flux density is therefore the force per unit current per unit length and it has the unit of testers. Magnetic flux is the number of magnetic field lines in an area and is BA cos theta. Its unit is the Weber. Magnetic flux linkage is just the magnetic flux but multiplied by the number of turns of a coil. So this has the unit Weber terms and is BAN COD theta where n is the number of turns. It seems that we had a lot of laws in these three episodes all about fields with Newton's law of gravitation, Kepler's laws and the Coulomb law. However uh, there's only two more Faraday's and Lenz's laws. However uh, you could probably say that was more one of the bit laws. Faraday's law is the EMF the electromotive force, which you may have to as the voltage into a circuit, is the rate of change of flux linkage. In symbols this is d phi over dt multiplied by n if there's multiple turns and Lenz just puts a negative sign in front of this because induced magnetism opposes the motion which causes it. The final topic is a topic we'll have encountered at GCSE. We covered it in our Electricity and Magnetism episode in GCSE Physics series last summer. Transformers we will now go through a brief recap of how they work and then debunk the idea that transformers are 100% efficient, a concept you will have been taught at GCSE. So, if you remember, a transformer consists of a primary and secondary coil with a soft iron core and an alternating current is used. There are three types, step-up, step-down, and isolating transformers. You should remember how step-up and step-down transformers work, and isolating transformers are similar. However, the number of turns in each coil is the same, so the voltage is unchanged. However, this makes them useful for use in bathrooms or other places where there's a water source near a power outlet, because this separates the circuits out. So how do they work? An alternating current goes in and this changes direction every half cycle. This forms an electromagnet, and the magnetic field changes every half cycle. This means there's a rate of change of flux in the core. This results in an induced EMF in the secondary coil, so an induced alternating current is produced. You might think that you could use a direct current, because this would still produce a magnetic field. However, because the magnetic field doesn't change direction, magnetic flux linkage isn't changing, and as there's no change in flux linkage, there will be no EMF induced in the secondary coil. As said earlier, the transformers aren't 100% efficient, and there's four main reasons why, so I'll go through them sequentially. Number one is probably the simplest to understand. The wires that make up the coils don't have zero resistance, which means the power I squared R is lost and they heat up. This means that resistance is further increased the power loss continues to increase. To oppose this copper is often used because it has a low resistivity. Resistivity is the resistance multiplied by cross-sectional area over length of wire. So you'll often see that the secondary coil in the step-up transformer where the voltage is greater in the secondary coil has wires with a larger cross-sectional area to decrease resistance. The second point is all about the soft iron core. You've always been taught that it's used, but why? It's because the magnetic domains, which align when the material is magnetized, can move easily. This reduces the friction and therefore the heating, reducing power loss. If you consider that the magnetic field direction changes every half cycle, this is quite frequent, so this is a significant feature in saving power. The third feature, is integrated in transformers is that the primary and secondary coils are layered with a small electrical insulating layer between. This reduces the distance between them, increasing the magnetic field strength and therefore magnetic flux, so EMF is greater. The final, fourth feature is slightly more complex. Lenz's law states that EMF is the negative rate of change of magnetic flux linkage, because the magnetism opposes the motion that causes it. The current has a magnetic field that opposes the overall magnetic field that you want produced by the coil, reducing its overall magnitude. To reduce this effect, the layers in a transformer are laminated to break up the eddy currents, increasing EMF output. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Revision Hub. We'll be moving on to some A-level chemistry topics over the next couple of weeks including benzene and phenol, and precipitate formation. However, if you'd like more A-level physics, make sure to check out all of our previous episodes, including waves, materials, electricity, and particle physics. As always, if there's anything you'd like us to cover, contact us via Instagram at the.revision.hub, and we'll see what we can do. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you again next week. Bye.